Okay, but here's my question. Who are the ladies? Avi, we're the ladies. Hi there, you're listening to The LadyCast, conversations with women to inspire you to go out and do the thing. I'm Alex Laughlin. This week, we have a really exciting guest. It's Liza Mundy. She's a senior fellow at New America and the author of this month's cover story in The Atlantic, Why is Silicon Valley So Awful to Women? She's also the author of several books, including The Richer Sex, How the New Majority of Female Breadwinners is Transforming Sex, Love, and Family, and the upcoming book, Code Girls, the untold story of American women code breakers who helped win World War II. We had a great conversation about her piece and also about her career, her professional focus on gender, and why we need to debunk the idea of the male genius. This was a really exciting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Liza Mundy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this month's Atlantic cover story, Why is Silicon Valley So Awful to Women? And I definitely want to get to that. But before we do, I want to kind of just take a look at your career and how you've gotten to this point. Well, let's see. I was a reporter at the Washington Post for about 20 years, uh, writing mostly for the magazine, general features, uh, politics, uh, culture, women's issues. And I write books also. And so I'm currently finishing up a book and writing for The Atlantic, and uh, that's it. <laughs> Living the dream, basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I certainly tell myself that in my little, in my little workspace at home, that I'm living the dream. You know, a lot of the work that you've done, a lot of your writing has focused on the role of women economically and also socially. And I'm curious, where did that start for you in your career? When did you decide to focus professionally on on women? Well, I I wouldn't say that I focus uh, only on women. I I, uh, have a lot of interests and I like writing about politics and technology also. Um, But I I have always been interested in gender, uh, having been influenced by feminism in the 70s and, you know, gone to college at a time when women had only been admitted to my college for 10 years or so when I started. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's always been there. You know, it's funny. I think that some of my writing on gender started at the Washington Post during the Clinton administration when he was appointing Janet Reno and she was our first female attorney general. Um, there was a lot of conversation around Hillary Clinton and feminism at the time and Bill Clinton. And so I did some profiles of female political figures, including both Janet Reno and Hillary Clinton. And, you know, as a working parent, before there was really mommy blogging, I was writing a column about challenges of working parenthood, which get so much more discussion now than they did, say, 15 or 20 years ago. I think Sheryl Sandberg and Amory Slaughter and and the internet and mommy blogging has really brought the conversation to a fore. I don't know that things are any better than they were, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot more conversation now. Do you think that the challenges that working parents face have 
shifted or changed at all in the time since you started writing about them? Definitely. It's funny. I remember at the when I was at the Washington Post and, and <laughs> a working parent, this was before, this was when you were still kind of tied to your desk. I wouldn't say it was before the internet. I'm not that old, but it was before <laughs> we were able to file from sort of, you know, anywhere. So if you were working on a piece, if you were filing a piece, if you were editing it, you pretty much had to be at your desk, which was challenging for medical emergencies or or anything like that. So life is a lot more flexible now, but it's also totally 24-7. And that brings its own challenges. I mean, the challenge of being overwhelmed and working all the time and feeling like you have to file at midnight or edit something at midnight. Work is just omnipresent now in a way that it wasn't. So it's easier, I think, and obviously I'm just talking about journalism, but it's Mm -hmm. easier to leave in the middle of the day if you have to, but then you're also going to be filing at 9 p.m. And uh, I I really don't know which is easier or harder. I think they both bring their own challenges. You know, I think probably millennial fathers are, are more involved and are living the same kind of stressed out work life situation. Although I think that that's always been there, but I think it's probably even more acute for men now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was looking at your New America profile, and the last line of your bio <laughs> said, at various points she has worked full-time, part-time, all night, at home, in the office, remotely, in person, on trains, in the car, alone, with other people, in dangerous places, under duress, and while simultaneously making dinner. And that is all true. I love that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, and I'm, but I'm, you know, I, I don't think there's anything unusual about that for working parents. Um, and the only thing I will say, now that my kids are both in college, is, <laughs> is that I miss it. <laughs> Really? I mean, I have a lot more time now. And and it's sort of like, beware of what you wish for. Because some days I think, God, I could could just work all day and I could work all night. (laughs) I would nothing to interrupt me. Uh, And so it, 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 it would be a mistake to say to working parents, you know, enjoy it while you can. But there are aspects of it, actually, that I, I quite miss. Do you feel as if when you are a working parent and you have so many responsibilities and concerns to juggle that you are almost more productive because you have to make sure to get things done? Yeah, on a good day, definitely. Um, And I I feel that, uh, you know, if you can just prioritize and I mean, I definitely was a master of getting medical forms in late. I think I've told my kids, I don't think I ever got there like annual health form into the school on time. So, but you know, there is a lot of, there is some school related paperwork that you actually can't ignore. Uh, and uh, probably not the medical forms, but, um, yeah, I was reading recently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was talking about early in her career when she was in law school and having children as well. And she talked about how she felt like it helped her concentrate. And of course, this was the, these were the days before kind of having to be on all the time. But I think it was when she was in law school and she said, you know, from eight to four, that was law school. And then at 4 PM law school was over and I was you know, belonged completely to my children and my family. And she Mm -hmm. thought that it was a really productive way to work and to be as a person. And, and I, that really resonated with me. So let's, let's talk about your story. I've been reading it all this week and 
It's funny because as I was reading it, I came across the news that Marissa Mayer's successor will be paid twice her salary, um, which, you know, made me want to flip the table. (laughs) (laughs) Table table flipping is actually a a phrase that came up a lot in my interviews. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet. So, um, So tell me about the story, first of all, then we can talk about it a little bit. Well, it's, I, I suppose it's about why uh, an industry that is so progressive or thinks of itself as so progressive and so right-thinking and so forward-looking uh, and so problem-solving, why is it so hard for women to thrive in this industry, which is also, by the way, you know, a very lucrative and enjoyable profession with opportunities for high salaries, swift advancement. You know, I mean, tech is is a great field. And the women that I interviewed for my piece love working in tech. They don't want to leave. But women, in fact, do leave tech at, a, at twice the rate that men do. So the piece, it's an attempt to answer the question, why of kind of all the fields that you would think would have nailed this and solved it and would want to solve it. Why is it still so hard for women and why has it not gotten better? And what I really came away from reading your article was that it's a series of small things that really add up and just make you tired. I think it's more than that, though. I I think it's, I mean, because any profession can have a series of, of things that add up and make you tired. I think that it's you know, it's it's a profession where there are sort of reasons why there are maybe more men in computer science courses uh, than women. So it kind of starts there. Mm-hmm. But it's also a profession with a lot of money washing around and the sort of behavior that goes on around kind of big money, big fundraising, venture capital. Also, it's an environment where there's a lot of behavior, a lot of work-related behavior that's taking place in unregulated spaces. So you know, and this can be true for scientists in the field. Also, there was a study showing, you know, that sexual harassment is a real problem for scientists working in the field. Whenever you're in an unregulated workspace, be it, you know, tech conferences or or fundraising pitches where really, I mean, there's no uh, there's nobody in charge. There's nobody if you're. If you're a woman and you want and you're in a, you know you want to get in on a venture capital deal and the guy you're pitching or uh, says well you'd have to spend some intimate time with me in order to get in on this deal which is an example that a woman gave me there's no HR department you can go to not that HR departments always react well as we know mm-hmm. from the um, the blog post by the former Uber engineer but there really is sort of nobody you can petition. And the same is true of these conferences, although they're feminist groups that have at least gotten sort of written codes of conduct so that tech conferences maybe aren't kind of the dangerous environments that they that they were and it still can be. So I think mm-hmm. I, I think there are aspects. I mean, I've thought a lot about this, you know, what is what is different about tech? And I think money is a big part of it and kind of tech culture, computer science programs that men feel sometimes more comfortable in for various reasons. So anyway, I think there are aspects of this culture that that are unique. So tell me a little bit about implicit bias training. You wrote that a lot of companies seize onto implicit bias training as the solution, Um, but you found that it can often backfire. 
if it's just brought in as a kind of a one-time, once-a-year, okay, here's our diversity training for the new millennium, then it can backfire. Implicit bias training, it is a really interesting body and persuasive body of research, I think, which shows that even in right-thinking cultures, and sometimes especially in right-thinking cultures where maybe there's not so much explicit bias against women or people of color uh, or anybody who feels different, that, that there are so many kind of ubiquitous examples of bias behavior, you know, that women get interrupted more in meetings, that one of the more depressing studies found that women's contributions to open source software are accepted more often than men's are, but only if their gender is unknown. So Mm -hmm. uh, the minute a female name is attached to it, uh, then that just changes the way that people look at the work. And when women become parents, they're seen as less committed to their work. When men become parents, they're seen as more committed to their work. This is not just true in tech. This is true in workplaces in general. So implicit bias is a body of research that shows, you know, all sorts of ways in which just basically assumptions are made, even by right-thinking people. The problem with it is that if it's just a one-time training session where the moderator says, well, I'm biased and you're biased and everybody's biased. And they perform this test where you have to make very, very quick associations and people have a harder time associating women, say, with science. So the the test kind of quickly proves to people that they are, in fact, biased, even though they don't think they are. But the problem with a kind of an exercise like that is a person can leave and say, okay, well, yeah, I'm biased and you're biased and everybody's biased and so I'm just going to accept my biases or maybe even not really know what to do about them. But but the, the danger is that they can actually normalize bias, whereas kind of older-fashioned diversity training <laughs> would at least say to people, bias is a bad thing, you know, that you should try to get rid of. And that's not so much the message now, although – you know, I think good uh, bias training that is really much, much more granular and ongoing uh, seeks to kind of change the way that uh, companies and workspaces do their hiring so that hiring managers aren't making snap decisions, that they have to take more time and really sort of enumerate and make checklists about why they're making certain decisions. So there is kind of a granular way to roll up your sleeves and try to apply the findings about unconscious bias in a more systematic and, and checklisty kind of way that does seem, you know, potentially productive and helpful. But if it's just a one-time thing where it's kind of an entertaining presentation on why we're all biased, that can be problematic. It's It's kind of an example of treating the symptoms but not the disease encouraging the symptoms saying well these symptoms are okay because everybody has them and there's a reason why you have them because primitive man had to if he saw a snake uh didn't have time to say whether it's a good snake or a bad snake just snake uh (laughs) and run away uh so yeah so the the message of it is sort of like there are evolutionary reasons why we've developed these biases and so again people might feel more okay with it Did you come across any companies during your research that were doing it right? 
you know, there are companies like Pinterest that are really trying to embed this checklist idea and change their hiring practices, again, so that managers aren't making snap decisions, and also really looking at, looking at advancement and whether and why women aren't advancing and how to change that. There are companies like Slack that have tried to engineer in diversity from the get-go rather than going back and re-engineer it in 10 years down the road. But I think one of the one of the solutions that I found sort of most persuasive, speaking of money, is um, Intel has established a, a program where they have hiring goals. In this country, we apparently can't do quotas, so you can't say quota, but you can have uh, very firm hiring goals, and they are throwing money at the problem in the sense that if the company meets its diversity hiring goals, then everybody at the company gets a bonus. And Mm. that seems to me really persuasive in that, you know, so often when you talk about diversity or hiring people of color or hiring women, it creates this kind of um, resentment among the existing workforce and this sense of us versus them. So, you know, they're going to come in and take our jobs uh, or it's going to be harder for me to get hired because all these other people are being hired. And instead, it's it creates kind of a win-win situation where if we meet our diversity goals, then we're all going to get a little bit richer. And that, that seems to me to send a good message in terms of making existing workers feel good about a company's efforts to diversify its workforce. Mm, yeah, monetizing. Monetizing. What- is is going to be a net good anyway. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I know that you have a book coming out soon called Code Girls about the women code breakers during World War II. But I'm curious if any of your research for that book informed the way that you approached this article. Very much so. That's one reason that I wanted to do this article. I thought it would help my thinking. They're, they're totally related because the the women who worked in code breaking during the war were working on machines in many cases that were the forerunners of being computers and and some of them stayed involved after the war and those were the days when it was believed that women were better suited for kind of low level repetitive tasks and in fact, women were doing all sorts of high-level innovative work, but that those were the days when software was considered a woman's field because it was seen as low-level and, and um, not that hard and not that potentially lucrative. So there's been a big change since then. Once it became clear that software was kind of the wave of the future, then men rushed into that field. So there is a real continuity between the work that was gone on during the war and immediately after the war and the birth of the computer industry. And I think it's it's very important and interesting to get out the stories. I know Walter Isaacson in his book, The Innovators, talked about women who were software programmers who were very involved in the birth of the computer industry. And I think it's very important to get those stories out because one of the interesting studies that I talk about in the Atlantic piece is this stubborn notion that certain fields, in order to succeed, you have to be a genius. And this Mm -hmm. stubborn belief that genius is a male trait, something that men are more likely to display, which is not true, but there are certain fields that cling to the idea that you have to be a genius to succeed. And women have a lot more trouble breaking into fields where this belief persists. 
So in medicine, like nobody thinks that a brain surgeon to be successful has to be a genius. I mean, everybody knows, yes, it's good to have aptitude and to be smart, but you also have to be trained. And so in so many fields, I think we accept that training and education are a big part of success. But there are other fields where the notion of genius just seems to loom larger. And I think in writing the book about women codebreakers, I think code breaking also sort of plays into this myth. You know, you see something like the imitation game and you read about Alan Turing or some of the other figures and you think, oh, it's these male geniuses who just, you know, had this flash of inspiration. And that's really not true at all. I mean, it was these massive efforts. And yeah, there were geniuses, there were male geniuses and female geniuses, but they were massive collective efforts. And Walter Isaacson talks about that in his book also, that 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 I think a lot of stories play up this idea that these genius individuals have pushed forward technology or or innovation and and the stories are really more more collective than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was reading the article, I came across that line where you said that genius was perceived as more of a male trait, and now I'm trying to imagine. Like, do we even have a narrative of a a woman genius who's, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg archetype of of socially awkward and a little bit rude and, like, mad genius? Right. I don't think it exists. Right. And and I mean, there are, I think the stories are coming out of Ada Lovelace or Grace Mm -hmm. Hopper or, you know, women who really were geniuses and pushed the field forward. I think there are examples from history. And I think the the male genius narrative is is overblown. And, and the genius narrative in general is overblown. I mean, we like these heroic stories. Mm-hmm. But I think the truth often is more collective. But we do, yeah. need, we do need the stories of the women geniuses also. Definitely. Have you seen Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk about genius? I, sh- I should say yes, but no, I haven't. <laughs> it's great. You yeah. should definitely look it up. Yeah. Um, she talks about how the ancient Greeks, they believed that somebody had a genius rather than they were a genius. Ah, right, right. Yeah. Um, and that key distinction can help you kind of create some separation between yourself and your art. But it also alleviates the individual of the responsibility of being a genius. Oh, that's interesting. I'll, I, I will have yeah. to watch that now. That seems very persuasive. Yes, and it's really comforting also just as a person who makes things. (laughs) Sounds like it. (laughs) For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy that nice workspace that the post has now. (laughs) It's beautiful. So much light. (laughs) So many windows. (laughs) I'm happy for you. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like listening to the LadyCast, please make sure to rate it on iTunes. It's really, really easy. I swear it takes like one second. You can follow The LadyCast on Instagram and Twitter at TheLadyCast. You can follow me on those same places at Alex Laughs. You can sign up for The LadyCast newsletter at the website, theladycast.com. There's a little tab there. Make sure to keep an eye on the Lemon Bowl DC's calendar because I'm adding new podcast workshop dates for April. So if you haven't been able to take one the last couple of months, there are still going to be opportunities in the future. And make sure to grab a copy of this month's Atlantic where you can read Liza's story. And that's it for this week. I'll talk to you guys soon. In the meantime, go out and do the thing. Bye.